So it looks like I've missed a deadline. I'm a dollar, I'm a day late and a dollar short. I should have released an episode yesterday. And I'm sure some of you are like, what are you doing? And I just had one of those days yesterday where like nothing was going right. I didn't want to do anything. I just wanted to lay in my bed. Not that I could, but I digress. So today I kind of wanted to talk about, I wanted to do a history episode, if I'm being honest. In that vein or that trail of thought, I thought to myself, other podcasts I've done, I've kind of talked about Henry VIII a little bit. If you listen to the episode entitled Daughters, Sisters, Queens, I kind of go a little bit into Henry VIII, and I, I said that I wanted to do an episode on Henry and his wives. And I just, I can't just do all six wives in one episode. I just can't. I thought very long and hard about this because each woman deserves their own place in the story. And it's hard to just narrow down a episode. So this is kind of going to be a series within a series. Kind of like Inception and Sheepshin. Um, if you watch that episode, you know about the Sheepshin. Moving forward. So I kind of wanted to just do like a mini-series within the series about Henry VIII's wives. And I will preface this by saying once again, I love Tudor history, which is essentially what this is. This is very, a very niche Maybe not niche subject, but it's a subject that I am very comfortable discussing. I am very comfortable pointing out the inaccuracies. Should every, anyone have an inaccuracy? Um, one of the biggest inaccuracies within Tudor history is Henry VIII had syphilis. And I remember having a discussion with somebody and I ended up not wanting to argue because they had obviously, in their head, thought they were right. And Henry VIII didn't have syphilis. There is no documented case or treatment, I should say, treatment for him having syphilis. And for those of you out there saying, well, he was the king. He could hide anything he wanted. Mm, not really in the 15th century. Because there at least would have been treatments that were prescribed to Henry VIII or syphilis and that would have been the documented proof and there is no such documented proof i digress though i, I preface this so much and if you're new here my name's christy this is murder mystery and history today's episode is a history episode if you're just tuning in for those of you who have been consistent followers i thank you from the bottom of my black heart and uh, let's get into it, shall we? So I kind of wanted to talk about Catherine of Aragon. So this would have been Henry's first wife of six. Now, I'm not going to overlap the wives because their stories kind of overlap a little bit. And it's hard to kind of, if you don't know the history and you're jumping from here to there, it gets confusing. And I don't want to confuse anybody with this. So I do feel a very strong pull with these women. I always have. And I think, like I said, we're going to, we're going to start with this first wife and we're going to go from there. So the issue is when we talk about Henry VIII's six wives, especially Catherine, their lives 
tie into his, mostly in a disastrous way. And you can't really tell each queen's story without kind of shedding light on what was going within the Tudor dynasty at the time. So let's start with Catherine of Aragon, because we're kind of giving Henry the spotlight here today. It's not his time yet. So Catherine of Aragon was the fifth child born to Ferdinand. Ferdinand? Ferdinand? We're not good at pronunciation sometimes. Of Aragon and Isabella of Castile. These were the co-rulers of Spain, and they were considered the powerhouse of the 15th century. They were considered one of the top royal branches to align yourself with. Ironically enough, Catherine, from her mother's side, Isabella, was related to English royalty through the Royal House of Lancasters. That, that's another episode. We're not going to get into that right now. And she was, in fact, a third cousin to her father-in-law and a fourth cousin to her mother-in-law. And a lot of you out there are probably going, that is disgusting. They were related. Ew. You also have to understand that in that time frame, royalty often commingled with each other. And it was seen, third or fourth cousins were seen all right by the Pope to marry. But generally, like your first cousin, it was, you had to get something called papal dispensation to even marry the person. And if you look at the House of the Hasburgs, I believe it would have been Catherine of Aragon's nephew that was so disfigured he couldn't even close his jaw until he was five years old and had to be breastfed up until that time. I might I might be wrong on that. I'd have to I'll have to do some research. But he is related to Catherine Rivera. Anyways. <clears throat> so because she was the fourth daughter to this couple, what Karen Catherine brought to the marriage market was virtually nothing. And it, it grosses me out to say that because dynastically speaking, she didn't bring very much to the table. She was a fourth daughter. She was considered indispensable. And it sucks that that's how she was thought of in this time frame. So, her marriage prospects were not that great to begin with. However, Catherine was very well educated for a woman of her time. She was taught in subjects that were thought to only be for men. She studied arithmetic, canon, and civil law, classical literature, which would have been her favorite, theology, religion, history. These were usually reserved for the heir and usually it was for a prince. However, Catherine's mother, Isabella, was rather more inclined to teach her daughters this kind of information, which in turn was unusual for the time. But Isabella had been taught this information in terms of strategy and how she had won her throne and she wanted to ensure that her daughters had that same advantage she did. But Catherine was also taught the domestic arts, which would be cooking, dancing, needlework, that kind of thing. In fact, throughout her life, she would sew Henry's, Henry VIII's shirts for him daily. Up until she died, she made his shirts. That became a contention with his second wife. But we'll, we'll get into that. But he wore these shirts daily. Even after everything this couple had gone through. She was very devout in her faith. She was raised a Roman Catholic. 
and she probably spoke about four languages. Now, as she became of age to marry, the question obviously was who could she marry? Who could she marry in Spain? England came courting. And it's important to note that Catherine's family, again, was the most prestigious, and nabbing a bride from this family for your royal house was considered like you had gotten, you were doing pretty good if you were able to marry one someone from her line. But it's also important to note that most royal families did not accept the Tudors as the ruling dynasty. They were generally thought that it was too uncertain and they might be overthrown. And if you had your daughter marry one of them, there goes your daughter. So most royal families turned their noses at the Tudors. And none of them really took any marriage agreements very seriously from that line. But because Catherine was a fourth daughter in a line of other daughters and had a brother, she again wasn't worth much in the marriage market. Again, it's horrible that I just said what I said. Absolutely horrible. It's gross that Catherine's marriage was determined on this. It's gross. This is how she was thought of. But... It grosses me out that she wasn't worth more because of when she was born. She was the final daughter. She wasn't. Anyways, it's just gross. I just don't even like speaking about people like that because I just think that this is a woman who in the 15th century learned arithmetic and history and canon and civil law. And here we are sitting here saying she wasn't worth much. She was worth more than she was given. So let's move forward. Catherine married into the Tudor house by proxy on May 19th, 1499. So proxy is generally like the brides in England or Spain and the grooms in another country. And they have someone just stand in for their marriage ceremony. So she was married to Arthur, Prince of Wales. And I know some of you are going like, who the hell is Arthur? Where did Arthur come from? I thought we were talking about Henry. Just wait, I got you. So, she married Arthur, May 19th, 1499, and she would have been around 13 this time. And that's generally when proxies would begin and the couple would start living together around 16, 15 if there was a bit of a rush for an heir. I don't agree with that. That's, this is how it was done in that time frame, because life expectancy was so low. If you were 30, you were considered old age. Figure that one out. 30s to 20, am I right? Hopefully. Um, so, they got married May 19th, 1499. And Catherine didn't come to England until November of 1501. So, some of you are going, what do you mean? Like, well, who's Arthur? Like, let's, come on. So, Arthur was Henry's older brother. And he plays heavily into the marriage to Henry. So, an actual physical marriage was November 14th, 1501, between Arthur and Catherine. And Arthur was raised to be the heir to England. Henry was the spare. Henry was supposed to be for the church, which is so ironic given his lecherousy, but I digress. So Henry was supposed to be for the church and Arthur was supposed to be the heir. So when you know that, that kind of starts, your brain starts turning gears, like what happened to Arthur. Anyways, so November 14th, 1501, 
The day after they got married, Arthur had come down to like a gentleman's room or something like that. And he had yelled, give me some ale for I have spent the night in Spain and I am thirsty. And the reason it's important to note that Arthur said that is this will play heavily on later on in Catherine's life. This indicates that the marriage was consummated. Therefore, they were truly husband and wife. And things seemed to kind of be going well. And England was destined to have this golden age with this beautiful young couple. Arthur and Catherine were a year apart. And one of the things Arthur was responsible for was presiding over the Welch marches, which is where his father's family was from. And this was typically the the heir would do this, go and have like a mini court there just to give them the experience for when they have an actual court with actual courtiers. And Catherine, as a dutiful wife, went with them. April 7th, or April 2nd, pardon me, April 2nd, 1502. Arthur died. Probably from the sweating sickness or the flu. Um, the sweating sickness is typical of the flu. It's, it's, it's like a flu, basically, is the best way I can explain it. It has flu-like symptoms. There we go. And it was considered one of the things that could kill you very quickly. Um, you would get sick, and because there's no modern medicine, you know, doctors would say, your humors are out of balance, this, that, and the other. And you would, you would die quite quickly within two weeks of the sweating sickness. You would have a very high fever. You'd be congested. It's, it's interesting to note that the sweating sickness was quite prevalent in England around this time. So Catherine at the age of 16 was now a widow. And it's important to note this because now the marriage has been consummated, supposedly. So now everybody's kind of waiting to see, is Catherine pregnant? Is she not pregnant? Basically, what do we do with Catherine now? Which is insulting on its own. Her father-in-law, Henry VII, not the eighth, the seventh, was in quite the pickle. He could return Catherine to Spain, but that also meant he'd have to return the hefty dowry that came with her. She was kind of in this limbo. Do I go to Spain? Do I stay in England? Where, what am I to do? And she often said that she believed she was destined to be the Queen of England and that God had called her to be the Queen of England. She was very religious, so this isn't crazy that she said this. Soon things kind of took a really bizarre turn. Henry VII died. Or, pardon me, Henry VII's wife died, not Henry VII. So, the current Queen of England had died. And there was talk of Henry VII marrying his daughter-in-law. Thankfully, this didn't happen. Catherine's fears grew worse. Soon, her mother died. Her degree of what she brought into a marriage decreased greatly. And I'm talking, like, from what she had before to now... She was, she was almost, she was in dire straits. Like, who would marry her now? And being a woman in this time frame, you have to really understand that this was a real fear. You could be torn on, thrown out on the streets. And it was bad. 
And I'm not even kidding. There are cases of women whose husbands have died. Their in-laws have thrown them out on the street. Like, go find your, go back to your family. And you would have to hope your family took you back. Yeah. So, now that her mother's died, she doesn't bring half as much as she did prior to a marriage. And the thing is, because Arthur's dead now, the current queen is dead. That leaves Henry VIII. Henry VIII is now the heir. Henry was five years younger than Catherine, and there was talk of him marrying her, just to solidify the Anglo-Spanish treaty. And the marriage was on hold till Henry, Henry was old enough to consummate the marriage. So this is kind of where papal dis dispensation has to come in. There had to be a papal dispensation provided so Henry could marry Catherine. And it's interesting to note, too, that she had to swear she was a virgin for Henry to marry his brother's widow. I digress. So Catherine waited and waited and waited for this marriage to happen. The funds she had were slowly running out. Catherine started selling her plates, her cutlery, just to ensure she and her servants had clothes upon their back. So Catherine is begging her father for money. And he's humming, he's hawing, he's not sending her money, he's telling her he loves her and to endure. And it's, thank you for that touching sentiment, but I need the money, is probably what Catherine said. She would often write about the ill treatment she received in England and how awful everyone treated her because she couldn't speak English properly. So, in 1507, Catherine became a Spanish ambassador to England, the first of her kind, a woman ambassador. And she seemed to do a remarkable job at it, often quoting, I am my father's daughter. So, canon law, religiously in Roman Catholicism, forbade a man to marry his brother's widow, ensuring that if a man did, their union would be fruitless. So, Henry and Catherine obviously had to get papal dispensation to make sure that they could they could marry. And again, as I've said, she needed to say swear that the marriage was not consummated, so her first marriage could be dissolved. So, seven long years after her first marriage, Catherine wed Henry VIII and became a queen. She was only one of two coronated queens of Henry's. The other four were not coronated. She was the lawful and rightful queen. And according to the long bloodline she came from, this was destiny. And God was guiding her to her destiny. So, at this point in Catherine's story, it becomes heartbreaking. It's sad. If you are a woman and you've had any kind of infertility issues, this will be hard to hear. And I'm sorry. And if you are suffering from that, I'm so sorry. In 1510, Catherine gave birth to a stillborn child. In 1511, a boy was born, but he lived less than two months. In 1513, Henry went to war with France and left Catherine as regent in England, which 
It shows how much he trusted Catherine, quite frankly. Later on in the year, Scotland invaded England, and Catherine, heavily pregnant, raised an army and addressed them in full armor. She ended up sending Henry the bloody coat of the King of Scotland. She intended to send him the body of the deceased king, but was unable to do so. This pregnancy, where she fought for her adopted country of England, heavily pregnant and supporting her husband, ended in stillbirth. Catherine found herself pregnant numerous times, but she usually miscarried or had a stillbirth. There is a theory that is running around, and it has gained some traction. There, there's actually a couple of books. I haven't read them yet, but um, based off of Henry's blood type, apparently, he had some kind of blood disorder, and it actually caused pregnancies. I don't know if I'm explaining this properly. There's something to do with this blood type that would always hinder a pregnancy, of the person carrying the baby. I don't know if I'm, I'm explaining this correctly. In the next history episode, I will make sure to have some books to throw out that information, but it's something to do with something to do with his blood that ensured that pregnancies did not happen full term. I'm explaining this wrong. I know I am, but I digress. I will have the book titles the next, um, history episode in this little series there was one pregnancy Catherine carried to term this child lived her name was Mary born in February 1518 it was at this time that Henry started to doubt the marriage and perhaps God punished him for taking his brother's widow to marry in 1525 at the age of 40 Catherine could no longer get pregnant in terms of why this could be, there's there's a variety of issues. So the numerous stillbirths, the numerous miscarriages, Catherine was not as felt as she once was. Also, Catherine was a very devout and religious woman. And one of the things that was fashionable at the time was called fasting. And I mean, if you work out a lot, you, you know what fasting is. If you don't, it's like... I'm only going to eat for two hours out of the day, and the rest of the day, I'm not going to eat. Catherine practiced fasting to an extreme. There wasn't like, I'm going to eat in the day. It's like, I'm going to have one cup of broth for three days. And that was it. But very religious women who practiced fasting often had irregular periods at best. And this could hinder fertility in the long run. To her dying days, Catherine would profess she came to Henry's bed a virgin. No matter what Henry decided, no matter what Henry said, she was steadfast. Henry, however, decided he was done with the marriage. It became an all-encompassing obsession with Henry to end the marriage. Catherine fought, and I mean like she did not give up, to keep her marriage and her daughter's inheritance safe. Now, because Mary was the only child of Henry and Catherine, she was widely considered the heir to the English throne. If you've listened to uh, Daughters, Sisters, Queens, the episode, I go a little bit more in depth about 
Mary's life and what happened there. So I'm not going to go like super, super in depth here, but what to do with Catherine? That was kind of the conundrum. Henry had decided he was done with the marriage. He didn't want to be married to Catherine anymore. He wanted a fertile young woman. How can he get rid of Catherine while preserving her dignity? And by preserving her dignity or trying to, that speaks volumes on these two people. They were married for like over 20 years. So, I mean, him trying to think of ways to not divorce her and like keep her posterity the way it was. What to do with Catherine? Well, council members suggested to Catherine to enter a nunnery. This would mean no divorce. Her daughter's inheritance as heir to the throne of England was safe. Catherine, steadfast in her belief, she's not going to a nunnery. She is the rightful queen of England. How dare you? She has famously been quoted as saying, God never called me to a nunnery. I am the king's true and legitimate wife. Catherine was not giving up. She refused. So Henry now asked the Pope for an annulment, despite the fact that there was a living child of the marriage, Mary. Despite the numerous stillbirths, babies that didn't la live past two months, there was evidence that he was habitually cohabiting with this woman. The Pope, however, was a prisoner of Catherine's nephew, Emperor Charles, and the Pope refused to give an annulment because, really, you're the prisoner of, of her nephew. What do you think's going to happen? Nothing good. Like, if you grant that annulment, your life's, you're already a prisoner now. Like, nothing good is going to happen. What could Henry do to end the marriage with Catherine? It was decided that Catherine would go on trial. Yeah, go on trial. And be investigated. Everything from her bed sheets from her first marriage were pulled out for the court to hear. In 1529, Catherine would only appear at this trial once. She gave this beautiful speech, which I will read to you. So Catherine shows up to court this trial on her, her innocence, her dignity. And the, she's been called so many times and she's refused. This is the only time she came and this is what she says. Sir, I beseech you for all the love that has been between us and for the love of God, let me have justice and rights. Take some pity and compassion on me. For I am a poor woman and a stranger born out of your dominion. I have no friends here. I have no counsel. I flee to you as the head of justice within this realm. Sir, when have I offended you? Or what occasion, what displeasure have I ever given you? Against your will, against your pleasure. Intending to put me from you, I take God and all the world to witness that I have been to you a true and humble wife, ever comfortable to your will 
your pleasure. I never said or did anything to the contrary, being always well pleased and content with all things, even when you had any delight or dalliance, whether little or much. I never spoke begrudgingly or showed a vision or showed a spark of discontent. I loved all those who you loved for your sake. Whether I had cause to or not, and whether they were my friends or my enemies, the 20 years I have been your true wife, and by me you've had diverse children, although it has pleased God to call them out of this world, which has been no fault of mine. And when you had me at first, I take God to be my judge. I was a true maid without touch of man. And whether this is true or not, I put it to your conscience. If there was any just cause by the law that you can allege against me, either of dishonesty or any other impediment to banish me, I am well content to depart to show my great shame and dishonor. And if there is none, then here I most lowly beseech you, let me remain in my former estate and receive justice at your princely hand. The king, your father, was in the time of his reign and of such estimation through the world for his excellent wisdom. He was accounted and called of all men the second Solomon. And my father, who was esteemed to be one of the wittiest princes that reigned in Spain many years prior, were both wise and excellent kings both in wisdom and princely behavior. It is not to be doubted that they were gathered as wise counselors about them to their high destruction. Also, as me see, there was in those days as well, all wise learned men and men of good judgment as present in both realms, who thought the marriage between you and I was good and lawful. It is a wonder to me what new inventions are now invented against me that never intended honesty and caused me to stand in order and judgment of this new court wherein you may do me so much wrong if you intend any cruelty you may condemn me for lack of sufficient answer having no indifferent counsel but none has been assigned with wisdom and learning I am not acquainted you must consider they cannot be indifferent counselors for my part your subjects taken out of your own counsel prior wherein they may be made privy and dare not for your displeasure disobey your will and your intent being once made privy prior therefore I most humbly require you in the way of clarity and for the love of God who is the just judge to spare the extremity of this new court until I may be advertised what way in order my friends in Spain will advise me to take. And if you will not extend to me so much indifferent favor, your pleasure then be fulfilled and to God I commit my case. So in essence what she's saying is this is a joke. Any counsel that you give me is biased. I don't trust any counsel because they're working on your terms. They're working to achieve your goal, not mine. I don't have any proper lawyers or anything like this. And she's saying, in all honesty, 
What has changed since you married me some 20 years ago? Why is it a problem now? So and you have to think for her to make such a long and lengthy speech for someone whose first language was, was Spanish, not English. And she never lost that heavy accent. You have to think that people were probably quite impressed with the speech, I would think. In that same breath, you have to know that Catherine was not giving up. There was nothing she would ever, ever do to say that her marriage wasn't proper or incorrect. Again, this was the only time she went to court. In 1530, Catherine was banished. Henry had created a new church instead of waiting for the Pope. She was now a divorced woman. Banished from the court, Catherine was at a loss. Her jewelry, her apartments were taken over by the new woman in Henry's life. Her daughter was now illegitimate. She found her household reduced to three servants, which is huge, huge, because this is a woman who had at least three people that would put her to bed at night prior. At least. Her ladies-in-waiting probably would have been 10, 15 people. She would have numerous cooks, people to tend to her horses, every, every aspect of her life she had somebody to do, that specific task. And now she's reduced to three servants. Continuing her religious fasting, Catherine never left her bedroom. She lived and died in that one room. And you have to think that's so damaging. She must have been so depressed. If you're just living in one room, like, that's so hard. And I, I do think that she was depressed. She had to have been. You know, your husband of how many years just throws you aside. It's heartbreaking. It's absolutely heartbreaking to think that your husband will just throw you aside like nothing. You've had all these miscarriages, all these stillbirths, trying to do your best as a queen, and he just threw you aside like you were nothing. The most damaging thing to Catherine was the loss of her daughter, Mary. They were forbidden to write or to communicate. They would have servants pass little messages, but it was often unsafe to do so. And it was very tricky to do so, but they still had that maintained some form of communication, but they weren't allowed to speak, write, that kind of thing. And it, it's awful that he kept her only surviving child from her. And the issue here that is also very damaging is had Mary and Catherine acknowledged the new queen, Henry's new wife, they would have been able to see each other. Both steadfast, they refused. They were separated indefinitely. So you have to think too, 
had they not have been so stubborn, I, 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 I hate saying that. Had they acknowledged the new queen, they could have seen each other. But in essence, too, had they have done that, they would have thrown Mary's claim to the throne, to the wolves. It, it was a hard time to be a woman in these times. And I think for Catherine, this was probably the worst thing was to keep Mary away from her. And I think to her, accepting somebody else wore your jewels, your clothes, lived where you were supposed to be, would have been a hard pill to swallow. And I don't think if I was in Catherine's shoes, I would have been able to acknowledge a new queen, quite honestly. In December of 1535, Catherine lay dying. She made her will. She begged Charles, the Emperor of Spain, to protect her child, Mary. She penned one last letter to Henry. And it's important that I read this to you so you kind of get a sense of Catherine's will. My dear Lord, King, and husband, the hour of my death is now drawing on. The tender love I owe you force me, my case being such, to condemn myself to you and put you in remembrance with a few words of the health and safeguard of your soul, which you ought to prefer before all worldly matters and before the care and pampering of your body, for which you have cast me into many calamities and yourself into many troubles. For my part, I pardon you everything. And I wish to devoutly pray God that he will pardon you also. For the rest, I condemn unto you our daughter Mary, beseeching you to be a good father to her, as I have desired. I entreat you also on behalf of my maids to give them marriage portions, which is not much, only being three of them. For all of my other servants, I solicit the wages due them, and a year more, lest they be unprovided for. Lastly, I make this vow, that mine eyes desire you above all things. Catherine, the Queen. In essence, what Catherine is saying here is all she's ever wanted was Henry. She thinks that Henry made a mistake divorcing her, creating a new church. These are all things that will condemn him to hell according to her. Again, she was a very religious woman, so it's not uncommon for her to think like this. And beseeching her husband to be a good father, in essence, is saying, you have banished me, and yet Mary's taking the blunt end of it, because you can't get to me, because I will not bend to your will. And lastly, Catherine the Queen, as she signed her name. She signed her correspondence like that for the rest of her life. It irritated Henry to no end. He actually demanded numerous times she stop signing the queen and she refused. But again, as I mentioned firstly in this episode, she also made his shirts for him that he wore daily up until her death. She still made shirts for him daily. That was every every day that was part of her task was to make shirts for him because that's what a good wife did. So she tried up until her dying breath to be the best wife she could for him. 
which in essence says a lot. Through and through, she refused to con concede she was no longer queen. Despite the fact, had she have conceded this, Henry would not have made her suffer so. If she gave in to his will, the queen dug her feet in and refused. Like a true queen. Catherine, a descendant of one of the most prestigious royal families, died quietly. At the time, there was a variety of theories as to what happened. Poison was a natural assumption. That's usually when somebody died in the 15th century. The first thing someone would say is poison. Um, when her body was being prepared for burial, it was noted her heart was black. And guess what she died from? Poison or a broken heart. And this is somewhat of an early form of embalming. They would cut the body open and stuff spiced herbs into there and sew it back up. And they would bathe the body with wine. There's actually cases of people having royal hearts. And I, I wish I was kidding. There's actually a case of some, some man auctioned to have, I think it was... It was one of the King Louis's of France. I think it was the Sun King. I, I forget what his number was, but his heart was at auction. The heart was perfectly preserved and he just had it in uh, a glass jar just to have it. People are weird. What can I say? Anyways, anyways, I, I digress. I went off on a whole nother tangent there. So in reality, probably what happened with Catherine was she had cancer, but I think a broken heart played into it. I do. Maybe I'm a romanticist. I don't... In a twist at Catherine's funeral, she still wasn't allowed her daughter. Henry loved the last word and forbid Mary to attend her mother's funeral. And I think that really upsets me because just because everything that happened between this couple, you can't sit there and say, you cannot attend your mother's funeral because I decree it. I think that was manipulative on his part and that was one last jab at Catherine. And it wasn't like she could say anything because she's dead. And I, again, I think that was awful. Quite frankly, we'll, we'll get into Henry in a more you hear about his escapades with the rest of his queens. But Mary was unable to attend her mother's funeral, and this was something that stayed with her the rest of her life. So, here are some suggestions. If you want to learn more about Catherine of Aragon, I got you. Because I, honestly, I gave you the too long, didn't read version. There are tons of other things about Catherine that are fascinating. And I think you should read about them, if you have time, of course. So if you're interested in her life, here's some suggestions that I've read and I've enjoyed. You'll notice two of these books deal with all of the wives, but Catherine being his first queen plays a large role, and her life is greatly detailed. And usually, if you read anything about Henry VIII, Catherine of Aragon will always be mentioned. There will always be a large portion of her life because she was a large portion of Henry's life. So you could read 
the wives of Henry VIII by Antonia Fraser. You have to be like with Antonia Fraser though. <sighs> the book was written and some of the things in there are not proper terminology and they can be offensive. So, be forewarned. Six Queens, Dr. David Starkey. This is actually my favorite book, believe it or not. Um, and I'm not kidding. I have that book on my e-reader. I have that book in a hardcover, which I remember the first time I saw that book. I had been watching this PBS story on Henry's Six Queens. It was the show that accompanied the book. The book was like $80. I watched the show and I'm like, this is so cool. And I was like, four, 13, 14? Anyways, and the book was $80. And my parents had just gotten divorced. And I knew there was no way I was getting this book. And it was, oh, 10? Is it, was it 10 years ago? Ugh, that's depressing. Over 10 years ago. Oof, that's really depressing. Um, I had gone, I was living in a small town and they had this used bookstore in the basement of oh I forget what it was in a basement of a building and it was dingy and it was dark and it was gross I don't even think they had a debit machine anyways I, I kind of poked around and I looked around I didn't see anything and I was just about to leave and there was Six Queens by Dr. David Starkey hardcover and I, I didn't even care how much it was I was buying it and I asked the guy at the counter, he's like, oh yeah, this is eight bucks. And I'm like, yeah, yeah, it is. And that, to this day, I love that book. Anyway, anyways, I, I, I digress. I kind of went off on another little tangent there. Catherine of Aragon, Henry's Spanish Queen by Giles Tremlett. This is actually a really good, just based on her life. So I would read that again. I still have that book, actually. It's sitting on my bookshelf. It's a really good one to start off with because it kind of gives you the basis of her life in a lot more detail than the other two books would. So we're almost at an hour. I just looked at the time. So if you are interested in Tudor history, stay tuned because I think we're on to something here. I think we're going to do a Tudor special. So... The next history episode may or may not be Tudor related, but we'll see. We'll get there. So, again, this is Murder, Mystery, and History. My name's Christy. If you have a comment, concern, feedback, your girl loves to hear it. You can email me at murdermysteryandhistory at gmail.com. Also, is there a mystery you want me to talk about? Is there a murder that you want me to ramble on about? Or is there a historical event you feel like people should know? Again, hit me up, history at gmail.com. So, now that we're finishing up, the best praise that you could ever give me is if you share an episode with a friend and they like it. That's awesome if you could do that. So, if you, this is the best praise I can get. If you want to give me the best praise share with your friends. Also, you can follow me on Google Podcasts, Beaker, CastBox, Pocket Casts, Radio Public, Stitcher, that's new, 
Spotify, and Anchor. How does that work, you guys? Isn't that crazy? We're on like six platforms here. So, again, please follow me on Spotify, Anchor, Google Podcasts, Overcast, Beaker, CastBox, Pocket Casts, Radio Public, and Stitcher, just to get notified of new episodes. So, here we are. Until we meet again. <laughs>